Here we go. Welcome to MN90, Minnesota history in 90 seconds. In 2004, out of rural Brinkley, Arkansas, came reports that an ivory-billed woodpecker had been spotted. Not only that, there was video. Blurry, yes, but holding out the hope that a bird believed extinct had returned from the dead. Ivory-billed woodpeckers were the largest woodpeckers in the United States. They were last seen over 70 years ago, until the 2004 reports. Every birder wanted to believe. But Tom Nelson, an electrical engineer from Minnesota, started a blog where he dubbed himself the Ivory Bill Skeptic. So just as I investigated the evidence for myself, if I learned something new, I would put it on the blog. It's averaging a little over three. Nelson was interviewed for a 2009 documentary on the Arkansas sighting, Ghost Bird. Nelson's blog became a site for Ivory Bill discussion and a target for hate mail. A lot of people seem to think that if you question the evidence, you really don't want the Ivory Bill to live. It's just a message people don't want to hear, and I can understand that. Does the Ivory Bill woodpecker live? As of 2017, new claims were surfacing, but as yet, no verified sightings. MN90 is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Online at mn90.org. All right, joining us now, our good friend, Mr. Al Bat. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning, Karen. Good morning, everyone. Who would send hate mail about <laughs> whether or not a woodpecker is still living or not? Right. Oh, gosh. That's, where, that's why Oofta was invented. So when you hear that, you just say Oofta. It's, it's wonderful that people feel so strongly about something, but hate mail? Really? Yeah. I, I don't understand it. It's just, you know, there's so many things on earth I don't understand. I'm going to put that maybe on the top of that pile. I just don't <laughs> understand that. I One thing I didn't understand today, I was outside and I listened to the clucking or chucking of chipmunks. And typically they're stationary when they make those sounds. People often uh, mistake them for the song of a bird. And Supposedly, studies have, well, not supposedly, studies have shown that they issue these warnings of a predator in the sky. And I about wrenched my neck looking for a predator in the sky. (laughs) I couldn't see one anywhere, so I don't know if they were just testing their warning system or what was going on there, because I could not see any, anything in the sky. But they went that. And it just went on and on and on like that. So it had to be something going on. I, when I was a kid, I thought maybe they was they were using that to keep an. They were using that to offend another chipmunk <laughs> and just say stay away. But apparently, these tests now have shown that it's a, a predator, a raptor. Hmm. And Karen, I bet you're seeing this. There are pale green corn rootworm beetles. Uh, They wander away from the cornfields in late summer, and they visit gardens where they feed on flowers and vegetables. They're sort of a lime green color. They're just on everything now. Wait, do they have little stripes, too? Or is that the four-line plant? Some do. Because there's also the four-line plant bug. So what am I looking at that's different? Because I know the four-line plant bug. So I have seen some little green, lime green looking things in my garden. I wasn't sure what they were. Yep, those are the corn rootworm beetles. 
Okay. They're just, uh, this time of year, you know, like so many insects, you don't see them, you don't see them, and then boom, all of a sudden they're just, uh, they are ubiquitous. That's, I think, what that word was invented for, was to describe these guys. How harmful it's are they to our, how harmful are they to our regular gardens? Because I, I, I just Googled and looked at it, and I did see them out by the lake garden, and I'm wondering, are they extremely or not so bad? I think they're probably not extremely because of the time of the year, maybe, because oh. they certainly will chew on flowers and vegetables. But at this time of year, you know, they they have a limited time to do much damage, so it's probably hard for them to catch up with some of the other insects we have. So I'd say probably not uh, an extraordinary pest, but um, they're not real welcome here either. So. Uh, I know you got a text from Abby who said something about uh, the blackbirds, uh, awesome curves, making awesome curves in the sky, which is a wonderful way to describe it. This morning I saw some murmurations of starlings also. These wondrous shape-shifting flocks. It's just so cool to see them. They're not migrating so much as doing a fall shuffle, so they've got no obligations now, so they have this uh, flock. They're probably their extended family unit is all in that flock, and they can just go wherever they want, wherever the eating is good. But oh, it's just so cool to see them. It's just amazing how they twist and turn and make all these different shapes. So it's a fun thing. I listened to hummingbirds yesterday, the hum of the wings and that little chittering they make. And somebody, uh, asked a question about it that hummingbirds drop their internal temperature and they induce a temporary state of torpor and that means they need less energy and therefore less food and they can withstand frigid temperatures which are our cool nights so this person found a motionless hummingbird and i'm sorry for calling you this person i don't have the name <laughs> i apologize for that but if you spot a motionless hummingbird, don't be alarmed. It might be torpor. Oh. And they're amazing little guys. The young, hum- young hummingbirds migrate along the same routes and winter in the same places their ancestors have, some making an 18-hour flight across the Gulf of Mexico. And they are solo. They migrate solo. So it's they're pretty much by themselves. They might see other ones and say, hey, well, what are those guys doing? and check it out but otherwise they're individual migrators i'm watching pelicans where i am right now and one group of pelicans i swear is driving prey towards another group of pelicans they are cooperative fisher birds but apparently that even goes from one flock to another flock and the american white pelican eats up to three pounds of fish per day also eats salamanders tadpoles crayfish there's a video online of one eating a, a pigeon it just looked at the pigeon and all of a sudden said, bam ate it uh downy woodpecker i was just listening to downy woodpecker it makes a whiny call that descends a pitch at the end and the hairy woodpecker's call is similar but it doesn't descend in pitch at the end so it's more steady across a lot of folks have been talking talking about mast this year a lot of acorns mast is a term 
that's used to describe the fruit of trees and shrubs. So a mast year is when a particular species produces more fruit than normal. So you have soft mast, which is uh, blueberries, raspberries, things like that. And then you have hard mast, which are acorns and walnuts, etc., hickory nuts. Oaks have cycles of high and low yields. So an oak masting year happens every oh, two to five years. And in a mast year, seed-eating animals are unlikely to eat all the seeds produced, and that leaves the rest to sprout. And an abundance of acorns is said to uh, portend a bad winter, but that's not true. In September, boy, look at those monarch butterflies now. If you're lucky, you see some congregating in large numbers. By the end of October, they've left the state in a mass migration to their winter grounds. Bonnie Lom, you know, Bonnie, I hope I'm getting your last name right, L-A-U-M-B, she lives uh, northeast of Caledonia, and she says, Lately I've been seeing hundreds of dragonflies towards evening. They don't land, so we've not seen this before. Wondering if you could give us some answers. Also, others have said the same thing is happening at their places. Uh, there are two types of dragonfly swarms, Bonnie. The migratory swarm, we do have uh, dragonflies that migrate, and then there is the, oh, you'd call it static feeding swarm, where they catch insects to eat. And I typically see large numbers when flying ants are swarming. The dragonfly that migrates and the one that we're most likely seeing now and that you're most likely seeing are common green darners. They're beautiful dragonflies which migrate south. You might also see some meadowhawks. Uh, some of those will look real reddish, and they're much smaller that might be feeding on those swarms of ants. So I hope I've come close to answering your question, Bonnie. Uh, Rick Draper of Albert Lee sent me a lovely video of bald eagles that he took at Myrie Big Island State Park. Uh, Brian Smith of Sleepy Eye says there's a ruddy turnstone at the Sleepy Eye water treatment plant been there since september 9th deb kennison of ellendale said she got a really close-up look of an eastern kingbird and was just commenting on how what a beautiful bird and i agree uh chad hines said on saturday the hawk watch ended up with 1635 raptors 11 species the bulk were recorded at bethany had 1,916 going into the day and nearly doubled that total. Highlights included three dark morph broadwing hawks, a light morph Swainson's hawk mixed in with a kettle of broadwings, had a merlin catching dragonflies, but he was going north, so they didn't count him. Other birds at the hawk watch at Bethany, common nighthawks, they had over 75. Ringbill gulls, Canada geese, blue jays, over 100, swallows, and swifts. Also recorded a pine siskin, scarlet tanager, Cape May warbler, and others. Uh, Marlis Weber of Albert Lee, we were talking about hummingbirds dancing. Uh, she saw some hummingbirds dancing in the air and said how cool it was. Dean Musing saw trumpeter swans and eastern phoebes. And asked a great question. Every question is great, but Dean said, can hummingbirds smell sugar water? 
you know, if you look online, most everything Dean will say they they don't have a sense of smell. They find most by sight, and I believe the last part of that they find most by sight. But there's been a lot of research done in the last year or two, and they have found that hummingbirds can indeed smell. They might not have the greatest uh, sense of smell, but they can. And they did studies on them. There's a certain ant that gets on flowers, and they're kind of, uh, oh, they're a rough bunch to hang with. So the hummingbirds try to avoid them, and they can smell those ants. So they will not come to flowers that have those. Even if you can't see the ants, they can smell that they've been there, and they won't come to those flowers. So maybe one day, right now we'd have to say, no, they probably cannot smell that sugar water. But you know what? I wouldn't put it past them. As we do more studies in this area, uh, we might find that they can indeed. Uh, Roger Davidson sent me a New York Times article, Why the Most Misunderstood Birds in North America Are Female. Hmm. Well, yeah, I, you know, a couple reasons there. For one thing, males do not understand them. And <laughs> ladies, you all know how that goes. I I love my wife. Do I understand her all the time? No, well, of course not. It's just, it's impossible. And the other thing is, we look at cardinals. We look at that beautiful red cardinal. What did early scientists study probably a lot more than the female? The male, because he was just so beautiful. Indigo buntings, the male presents this beautiful blue bird. The female's a little kind of brownish bird. So we've probably studied, if you go way back, we've studied the males a lot more. Uh, Jim Myers said a friend of mine from up north sent these photos of damage in a cemetery they think it's from skunks digging grubs. Do you think that is the cause? Could anything be done to prevent this? It happens at cemeteries a lot, Jim. It happens at lawns a lot. Skunks create holes by pushing their noses into the lawn. If you're hung around skunks, you can picture this activity. And then they use their front paws to dig out the area. So they're digging around their nose. So they leave a little hole in the ground with kind of soil circling it. And But sometimes there can be so many holes rutted out that they merge into this large disturbed patch of grass. Raccoons, on the other hand, they use their front paws like hands. And they lift and flip sod pieces over, and the sod sometimes appears as if someone has rolled it back, intending to transplant it elsewhere. I worked at a sod farm for one weekend. That's the only time it operated. And that's what we did. We rolled it up, and raccoons could have worked there. Hmm. Management of this damage, uh, it can be difficult. As extensive digging can happen in a short period, like overnight. Hmm. And there are few really reliable control measures for the animals. What do you do out in the cemetery? Take a dog out and have a, a watchdog or a watch person at night. It, it's pretty pretty hard to control those animals. You could put an insecticide, apply it to, uh, to the grass or the lawn. That will kill the grubs in the soil. And these curative insecticide applications, though, are most effective if done in August or early September. So we're kind of by that already. So, Jim, I don't have, uh, 
I don't have a, a good way to prevent that at this time of year. I am sorry. Uh, Jerry Victoria, Allendale, said, Greetings. I refilled hummingbird feeders. Still have a, several. How much longer should a person continue with the feeders? Also had a fun observation yesterday. We had a male grosbeak hanging around yet. Kind of late, I'm thinking. Um, Jerry, I great to hear from you. I keep my feeders up till October 1st. I, I want to catch latecomers and stragglers, and, oh, you know, if I see one after that, I rush out and I put a feeder up because they're not going to stay here because I'm feeding them, and they won't stay here, Jerry, because you're feeding them. So October 1st is kind of, I leave them up when I say until October 1st, I leave them up on October 1st, and then I take them down. And the gross beaks, Jerry, they're usually out of here by the end of September. I did see a couple of in October last year, so they will hang around, but it's uh, it, it's nice to see them. They are such lovely creatures that I uh, just, uh, uh, they, they add some beauty to a yard or wherever you might see them. So I'm glad you still have them there, and I hope they hang around a little bit for you. Uh, oh, why does a hummingbird fly backwards? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it, it's to keep the dust out of their eyes, so that's why they do that. No, uh, <laughs> a hummingbird's wing, it might be partially the reason. Uh, hummingbird's wings are unlike any other birds, and it allows them to fly forward, backward, hover, and fly upside down for a short period. And their shoulder joint is a ball and socket oh. that allows the hummingbird to rotate its wings 180 degrees in all directions. So it's a it's an amazing thing. Other birds are unable to do that. And hummingbirds don't flap their wings. They rotate them. And when hovering, they move their wings in a figure eight motion. And you can see that if you stare at them long enough when they come into your feeders and stick their beak in there. You can see those those wings are moving in a figure eight, which is just really cool. The same listener said, what is the, the most populous land bird? And I'm going to go with North America because I don't know the answer for the world. I think I do, but I think there's some dispute as to which one is actually. But I do know that according to the partners in flight, what do we think of right away? We think starlings, house sparrows, they got to be up there. Each of those, this is again for North America, there's 93 million starlings. Did somebody go out there and count them individually? <laughs> well, of course they did. No, they counted the legs and divided by two. These are, uh, you know, you have to make estimates. Uh, house sparrows, 93 million. So those two have tied. Uh, the they have the same population as the yellow warbler. So, boy, we see starlings and house sparrows all the time. Yellow warblers we see, but not so much. So what else do we think? Well, the common grackle, man, they're everywhere. they got to be up there, 67 million. And again, uh, starlings, house sparrows, 93 million, common grackle, 67. That's not as many as the indigo bunting, 77 million indigo buntings. Well, how about blue jay? Oh, goodness, we see blue jays. I just saw one here. A blue jay, 
17 million. Woo. 17 million is all. How about American Crow? 28 million. So now we get up, let's move up to some higher numbers. Red Wing Blackbird, Savannah Sparrow, and Yellow Rumped Warbler. 170 million. Dark Eyed Jungle, 220 million. Chipping Sparrow, 230 million. And who's leading the flock? I'll give everybody a minute to think of it. Some of you come up with it. It can it does surprise some people. It's the American Robin oh. has a population. Again, this is an estimated population of 370 million. Hmm. So it's not only our most common land bird. It is by a considerable amount here in North America. I did not include any of the waterfowl, oh. so these are just land birds, what we consider land birds. So it's, um, I'm glad we have a lot of robins. Uh, are they just better ad- adapted, do you think, or is it just, just because? I guess for many reasons, uh, they are pretty productive as far as reproducing oh. themselves, and they are everywhere. They are a thrush. So they can take cold weather, so they can hang around and get to places. I guess if you had to say anything about them, you'd say, well, they're tough and adaptive. They can uh, go different places, eat different things. Uh, We don't see them generally as feeder birds, but they will certainly come to feeders sometimes and eat uh, uh, the sunflower hearts and suet are the main things I see them eating. And, of course, part of the year they eat earthworms. And then part of the year they eat uh, uh, berries and fruits. And I've had several people say they've seen them eating Japanese beetles as well. So uh, we've seen blue. People have sent me information, cardinals, blue jays, robins, uh, starlings. They're all eating Japanese beetle adults. So they're just, they're great birds. We, We love have them around and... There's uh, so many songs and everything. Uh, boy, Rock and Robin comes to mind. One of the driving forces of early rock and roll. There's just so many good things about robins. They really don't. They don't bother us much. They nest near us, so if you have little kids, they can watch this whole process. Um, they uh, occasionally poop on things that they shouldn't, but who doesn't? You know, it's one of those things. So we're just happy to have them around. Uh, Kevin Lynn, just heard from Kevin. Kevin's from Belle Plaine, and Kevin sent a photo of a bald cardinal. And kind of saying, what's going on here? When northern cardinals and blue jays finish nesting, then they go, and it's time for them to molt and replace old feathers with new ones. Some cardinals and jays lose all their head feathers at once and gives them kind of a, a lizard look for a while. At one time, they thought, well, those are mites. they got mites on their head, and they can't scratch their head, and so they, um, they don't... That's why they can't put the feathers back on. So, you know, mites, uh, birds certainly have mites, but I had a friend, oh, I still have her. She was a wildlife rehabber, and she did uh, lots of blue jays. And she found that blue jays would go bald, not all of them, but some would go bald. So she would check them. There were no mites, no mites present whatsoever. 
So it's just a kind of an abnormal molt, and I don't know if it's even abnormal because I see it every year, and they don't need a um, hair club for cardinals <laughs> and blue jays. They do fine. It grows back. They have like a, a crew cut for a little while, and then pretty soon they have their crest. But for uh, a while, they are members of, uh, they could be the young and crestless. So, but they're they're doing well. And Kevin, that was a lovely photo of a uh, oh, kind of a I don't. It's got to be really stressful going through all that because when you lose some of your feathers, not those on your head, you kind of lose your agility and your ability to get away from things. So it has to be very very stressful. Plus, if they look in the mirror, they're going to say, <laughs> "What happened to me?" And I, I was. I was I was a handsome devil. Oh, look at this. I, I do, should have taken better care of myself. Do birds have a, a mid, uh, Al, do birds have midlife crises? Maybe they're going through that and they'll get the sports car or something? They probably do have a midlife <laughs> crisis. I don't know why they would. And, of course, you know, birds are a little different than us in that I would think they live in the moment. You know, they live in the present. And... We would tend to think that they probably don't think about the future or the past like we do. We tend to maybe spend too much time in the past. It's a wonderful place to be sometimes, but uh, I don't think birds, I think they're more in the present. And that's what uh, you can take a class on that where they'll pound that into you. You need to be in the present. You need to be in the moment and you'll be happier. Uh, I love the past and I, 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 I like planning for the future. So this came from a uh, teacher. She said our class, and she doesn't identify the school. She says, which bird builds the largest nest? And I bet all of you got this one. Eagle. It's not the hummingbird. The uh, eagle? Bald eagles build the largest ah, nest of any it. bird in North America. That makes sense. And they use those nests. Uh, they reuse them annually. And they add to it. They keep adding sticks so these nests get bigger and bigger. So that's, uh, thanks, thank you for being a teacher and for having kids that uh, are interested. I, I should throw in one thing that uh, kids always seem to find interesting about birds sleep while flying. There's a uh, wonderful group called the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology. And they found that frigate birds sleep in flight. Now, they can turn off one half of their brain. So one brain hemisphere sleeps while the other's awake. But the frigate birds can occasionally shut off both. So they're sound asleep. They're flying, and they're sound asleep. Man. So how much do they sleep? They sleep around 42 minutes out of each 24 hours flying. I wish I could do that when I'm driving because, man, I just, you know, want to take a nap. <laughs> it would be, yeah. I just hope none of the pilots on planes oh. that I've been uh, practice that. So 42 minutes out of each wow. 24 hours. And the other thing that's amazing about this, each sleep phase lasts 12 seconds. Wow. So they shut off their whole, they can shut off their whole mind sleep for 12 seconds and wake up. I don't know if they wake up refreshed. I can't imagine they do, but perhaps they do. <laughs> Karen, thank you, man. Um, and thanks, everybody, for sitting on the front porch with us. You know, the surgeon 
you know how surgeons, they're nice. They, they talk to you beforehand. The surgeon told me to think of a pleasant place before I went under the knife. <laughs> just relaxes you. And I thought of staring at a chimney. Really? I know. It's, it's, <laughs> it, most people probably don't do that. I'm not a chimney sweep. I, I've cleaned them. But I'm not a chimney sweep. I've not even played one on TV. But I travel around each year, and I hope for a good crop of chimney swifts, these beautiful little birds. Chimney swifts nest, and then they roost in chimneys. And when the swifts go into a chimney to roost, the bats appear in the sky on their nightly hunt. They just, like, switch jobs. I've seen flocks of swifts zoom into chimneys like a great act of prestidigitation. Swifts may look like flying cigars, but their memories on the wing. And I saw the awe, and in tough times, I remember those moments, and I remember those chimneys. So I think I was a great help to the surgeon. Thanks for listening to me, everyone. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. And Karen, again, I enjoy your company so much. Al, it's always great to chat with you. I just wanted to let you know I we did get another comment on our text from one of our listeners saying that they had the corn bugs in July and they decimated the sunflowers just as the buds opened. Didn't get a single full sunflower that didn't get destroyed. So are those corn uh, beetles out? They are. Okay. And so. Yeah, if you get them, if you get them that early, and I see them on sunflowers, they just seem to love sunflowers. Oh. And uh, it, I'm just kind of getting them now on most of the things in gardens. So mm-hmm. again, it probably I'll probably be okay, but. They can come in such huge numbers, and we look at them, and I was taking some pictures of flowers, because they're so beautiful, you know, what I do with them, delete them usually, (laughs) but every one had all these little green, and I was showing them these little green beetles, somebody said, oh, aren't they pretty? I said, no, (laughs) No. they're not pretty. Japanese beetles are pretty, too, but they're not pretty, because they eat everything, so these guys can be a problem. And, of course, uh, it's not good for uh, farmers either. No. Well, thanks, Al. We always appreciate you, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks, Karen. All right. Bye. Bye-bye.